0: This is First Nature on the Rising Man podcast with your host, Sean Barry. Episode 15, and today I'm stoked to bring you a conversation I had with a man by the name of Danny Blue. Danny came through the Rising Man Compass program last year. If you've been listening for a while, you've probably heard us talk about it. Uh, The Compass Program is a four-day, four-night solo fasting and wilderness rite of passage, Uh, a traditional way of getting out onto the land and transforming your identity, claiming a vision for yourself and coming back to uh, community support to begin building that world that you dream of with the people by your side. So that's where Danny came in, and... um, You know, that program is a really strong context for uh, getting to know somebody authentically, vulnerably, intimately, in a very quick way. It's about a two-month process overall, uh, resulting in a week out in the middle of that two months where we're out on the land together, um, getting these men ready to go out by themselves, to wander into the desert or into the forest and find their own spot and stay there for four days and four nights with nothing but water all by themselves. It's a a beautiful tradition that goes back um, so many, so many generations and many, many different uh, cultures. And I was really pleased that Danny came out. He had a wonderful story he came back with. And uh, I've been interested in this man because of some of the stories he told about what he was up to out in the world. And the main thing uh, that you need to know that we'll talk about in the interview as well is that Danny went down to South America some years ago had a very powerful experience and came back with a vision and a passion and a dedication to uh, to single-handedly take personal responsibility to help save the rainforest. And as a result, he's built up a, a, an amazing organization called OMA. And you can visit the website at omaearth.com. That's O-M-A-earth.com. And for the price of your fancy coffee habit for a week or your one of your subscriptions to one of your streaming entertainment platforms, you can actually save an acre, a whole acre of rainforest. And you get a really beautiful handmade bracelet on top of that made by the locals down there. And I'll let Danny talk more about that in the interview. And surely you can go check out the website right now. But it's a really elegant, beautiful, simple model that's based on sustainability, um, keeping things local, and the, and keeping uh, you know the tribes and the people down there who depend. You know, the rainforest obviously has an effect on the whole world, it's a, it's a huge issue that we're losing so much of it year to year, you know about this. And it's important to preserve it, not just on the behalf of the health of the whole world, but you know, there are tribes who have been living down there thousands of years, thousands of years who depend on what the natural rainforest provides for them just to live the way they live, which is super simple. But in these places, uh, it's not like they can do that. If they lose their habitat, their whole community and culture perishes. It gets wiped off the face of the earth. And that's what's been happening as we lose these uh, rich, diverse, uh, oxygen-providing environments like the rainforest. It's no joke, people. Uh, If you're paying attention to the headlines, you know that climate change is rapidly and quickly becoming the most important thing that we as a species really need to pay attention to and uh, come to terms with. And getting involved with OMA, Danny Blue's organization, is one great way to do it. A simple, easy way to do it. So easy. Uh, And it saves a whole acre just like that. Uh, the goal of OMA is to preserve one million acres of rainforest. So I do invite you to go check out the website and to tune in to hear more about um, Danny's project. So we're going to listen for that and Danny's story about um, just where nature came in for him and, and supporting him through his life up into uh, where he's at now with this project uh, and, a, and, a, and a beautiful uh, example of how to give back and the power of what one person can do with their vision and passion and i'll see you on the other side for now just sit back and enjoy this uh, beautiful conversation with danny blue all right folks we are here with danny blue uh danny is down in the uh, socal area i'll let him talk more about that but um, i met danny last year when he uh, made a choice to go out and take on the rite of passage through the compass program and uh, we've gotten to connect here and there since then and i'm super excited to have him on the show and talk about nature connection and how that has shown up for you um so welcome danny
1: yeah thanks so much for having me
0: yeah so um first thing uh you know i've said it before i haven't said it in a while but in general i i really try to shy away from the whole uh you know setting somebody up with all their intro of other things they've done. So what I prefer to do is just, um, you know, one of the questions is how would, how would your closest friends or your, you know, your family, or your loved ones, how would they describe you?
1: Hmm. Good question. Um, I would say anyone that, that knows me really well um, would describe me as somebody who has uh, kind of like an insatiable, desire for, um, peeking behind the curtain of life, uh, not taking everything at face value. I've always been somewhat of a rebel, uh, since, you know, since the early teen years and now that same energy is kind of translated into this more of this kind of, um, curious spirit, um, you know, there's so much going on in the world these days and there's so much chaos and noise and it's very easy to get pulled into a particular uh, specific dogmatic belief about anything that's happening. And I think that one of the things that I really hold dear as a value of mine is to just stay curious. You know, I tell people a lot of times um, my mantra is maybe you know, to anything, somebody says anything, maybe, um, you know, and that's, that's served me pretty well. I think that, you know, um, yeah, it, it's hard to not form particular beliefs or judgments about the world. And so that's one of the ways in which I try to stay as much as I can above the noise. It's just staying curious and being open to learning and, and seeing the world through other people's eyes as much as possible.
0: Yeah, great. I resonate with that for sure. Um, uh, that's actually one of the the gifts I claim to remind me of who I am, which is being curious. You know, I mean, I, I definitely go out there myself, and it's so easy to like have a driver do something stupid and just judge them in the moment, not to be thinking about their story or whatever.
1: Well, I'll tell you what. Yeah, the, the freeway is still my ultimate battleground, <laughs> my ultimate, my ultimate testing ground for for um, this wisdom. Because uh, I'm I'm far from having made it <laughs> uh, to where, if there's a destination that I'm trying to get to, and it's always uh, it's always brought to my awareness on the freeway. <laughs>
0: Who knew that the ultimate spiritual uh, battlefield would be the highways, right? (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. Um, Yeah. Um, Awesome. And then what would you say is your, um, you know, like, uh, how do you show up in the world? What's your, um, you know, what's the the characteristics? Are you kind of aggressive and bold? Are you, you know, more gentle and calm? Like, what's your MO out there when you're uh, just hitting the street and doing what you do and encountering people?
1: You know, I started my journey... Uh, if if you will, you know, on this path of spirituality and, and self-awareness and just deepening my connection to uh, purpose and the reason why we exist about eight or nine years ago. And um, you know, along that path, I really started working a lot with various different plant medicines. And I think that within that, I noticed um, a couple years ago that uh it had really opened up that uh that that feminine side of the energetics within me and i noticed you know i'd really been moving through the world in more of that just kind of uh, open creative space of just wanting to kind of you know see what's over here and see what's over here and uh it's only been over the past couple years that I've really begun deepening a practice into cultivating a more uh, grounded masculine energy to balance uh, to balance that side of me out, and um, it's it's really uh, it really motivates me quite a bit. And you know, I'm learning to uh, I'm learning to really love the pursuit of discipline because it's definitely one of the things that I have not. Mastered yet? If that's something that can be fully mastered, but it's um, it's a trait that I see more and more how crucial it is, you know, to to cultivate true freedom through discipline, which always seemed like a paradox to me. You know, it's like freedom is being able to do whatever I want, whenever I want. But when you learn that actually having discipline and creating systems and creating a foundation and being able to be grounded in a particular vision that you're wanting to create, um, it's really interesting how the idea of freedom takes on such a more bold meaning. Um, so that's kind of how I'm flowing through life these days.
0: Yeah. Uh, what would you say you're, well, two questions come up for me right now. <clears throat> would you say discipline is, would you attribute it to the more the masculine expression you talked about these, some of these more masculine attributes kind of coming out. Would you say that's one of them? And if so, w- you know, what other ones might be coming along with that one to sort of create this, you know, place you're in?
1: Mm, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I definitely attribute the, uh, the idea and the trait of discipline to the masculine energy, you know, really being able to cultivate um, a strong foundation And, uh, you know, sacrifice uh, short-term feelings and gains and whatever it is that you're in the pursuit of um, in in exchange for something that is available through a much longer commitment to a bigger vision. Uh, Other masculine traits within that, I think uh, integrity feels like a big one for me, but What's interesting about integrity is that's probably been one of the core traits that, you know, even when I was like, you know, ayahuasca ceremony after ayahuasca ceremony, you know, really like expanding into this uh, just ultra expressive, creative, feminine energy that would come through with a lot of that. Integrity was always one of the core foundational traits that has really guided my entire life. Um, I can't remember a time where that never felt resonant for me and (laughs) coming from a, uh, an Israeli Jewish mother, you know, I think, uh, that, that Jewish guilt (laughs) has been one of my, my biggest teachers as I, um, as I continue to, you know, dive deeper into those, those energies of shame and guilt and understanding how they direct my life in, um, in various different ways that might not serve me. But I guess, you know, you could say that if there was a a silver lining of that, um, that particular trait showing up for me a lot is really, uh, ensuring that I'm constantly staying in integrity because, um, it's just, I, I just, there's something physically in my body that, um, that does not agree with me when I when I start to move in a direction that feels like it would be an easy way to go and support me in a way that maybe I'm looking to be supported financially or otherwise, um, but know that it's something that I'll think about for the rest of my life. So
0: yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that. That's good. Um, good picture about this uh, Jewish mother. Um, kind of playing into all that which yeah. leads me right into our next question. Um, so what is your history? What is your lineage? Your, uh, you know, Where do your people come from? How far back have you been able to figure that out? And to what degree do you have a, a sense of identity still connected to that, if at all?
1: Oh, man, it's such a good question. And it's something that I've been more and more curious in developing a deeper connection to as I get older. And I haven't really had uh, a ton of um, awareness or connection to that in the past, but over the past few years, you know, I've started to deepen that. Uh, you know, like I said, my, my mom is Israeli, uh, her whole side of the family comes from Poland um, and some of the surrounding areas. And you know, her, her lineage, uh, her, I think, from her grandparents uh, around that generation the vast majority of them uh, were killed during the Holocaust and uh, you know, those that escaped ended up in Israel and America. So that that's probably one of the most resonant parts of my lineage that I connect the most with. Um, I, I don't have as much of an awareness around uh, my dad's side. I know that they, there's some, Eastern European, uh, if you go back far enough, but, you know, my dad grew up in the, in the South, in Atlanta, uh, which is where I grew up as well. And so you I always joke around me. It's like, I'm like the perfect mutt, you know, I've got an Israeli mother and a Southern American father born in Georgia. I was born in North Carolina. And uh, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot, to continue to discover and unpack with that. I mean, even just, you know, specifically around the genetic trauma, um, that is probably the ancestral trauma that is probably encoded deep in my DNA, uh, from, from my ancestors that were uh, around at that time of the Holocaust. Oh yeah. So, uh, Yeah, it's definitely something that um, I'm really, really curious about continuing to deepen and kind of dig further into to understand better, you know, myself through that.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's good to hear. Um, Do you have any uh, personal traditions or practices that you still? you know, keep in your life, uh, whether it's something adhering to a spiritual practice or just something traditional that you're, you know, particularly, I guess, your mom, since it sounds like she maybe had more of a cultural impact on your youth, you know, that you still keep in your life?
1: Yeah. Well, it's really interesting because, you know, obviously I grew up Jewish. Um, my dad's side of the family was Jewish as well. So I grew up Jewish and it, it just, it always felt to me as I was growing up that I was more connected culturally to the Jewish faith through my experience with going to Israel and connecting with my family in Israel. We used to go every other year and there was something really special about that time to me, but I never really understood Judaism or religion, um, as something that was a, a faith that I had this deep connection to. You know, as a matter of fact, it's interesting because I was never very religious growing up. You know, we would go to the synagogue on the high holidays, and we would, you know, celebrate the high holidays at home. Um, but I never really had a deep connection to religion through that. And it's it's interesting because, like like I said, like I I never knew myself to be connected to God in any particular way through my own religion. But I always viewed religion as, um, as the entry point to the connection to the divine. So I always kind of, you know, Christianity, Catholicism, Judaism, to me, these were all that like, I always knew them as these are the ways that you can be religious and be connected to God. Um, But I didn't particularly have any, you know, any connection myself through that. And I think that it really seems to be the case a lot with a lot of um, reformed Jews, that there's more of just this identity that's formed around the culture of Judaism over and beyond the deeper uh, religious elements of it. Although that seems to be changing a little bit and there seems to be a, a rise and people more kind of coming back, to the the teachings and the wisdom uh, that are the foundation of Judaism. Ah.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting is um, I had a, I was in a circle of friends some years ago, a woman there who was uh, came from Jewish heritage and she was inviting a group of us over almost every Friday, or maybe it was, there's like, I think there's one Shabbat of the month that's sort of like the high Shabbat or maybe I'm, I'm not sure, but I just remember we would go over there for Shabbat, but it was a very particular Shabbat and they would do the readings and have the foods and, you know, the dinner took like two and a half hours and it was really beautiful. I really enjoyed it. And, but one thing I really got from that and in conversations with her was how much um, nature is not just in Judaism, but all these sort of like, you know, big the big three religions, anyways, and most other ones, there is a huge component of nature that shows up in the teachings and the you know the readings and the, metaf- the metaphors and stuff. And um, so, I just want to kind of pull on that thread a little bit, and just ask you because you know since we're on first nature and this is about nature and this is all kind of folding back into that. And um, what would you say your connection to nature is, or how would you define nature connection? Let's start with that.
1: Well, I mean, just to kind of preface that by what you were talking about and how religion and how these, the, the, the main religions have these, these threads within them, uh, speaking, uh, speaking to nature and the importance of nature, the way I kind of always perceived religion was that God was separate from nature. God was something that, uh, was, was something to be connected to, uh, through the practice of this particular religion and nature was a separate entity that existed within the, you know, greater landscape of, of all that exists. And, you know, through a lot of the practices and experiences that I've had in my life, you know, I... I see that as a very, um, as like a it's a, a divisive kind of way of looking at the true essence of the the divinity that lives within nature. So, what it means to be connected to nature to me is understanding, uh, you know, the the way that nature itself, all you know, physical living beings and nature itself, is just the divine expressing itself in physical form and that that's more of the belief system that i have these days uh, as it pertains to you know the physical world that i see around me and the divine Um, you know it's merely just an expression of the universe you know wanting to experience itself in physical form Definitely one of the topics that, that interests me, and I spend a lot of time thinking about.
0: Yeah, great because we're we're heading there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but first, uh, just to kind of keep building out the context, uh, what do you remember about your um, your you know what do you remember about nature from your childhood? You know, what was your exposure to it? How did you sort of, you know, what was your kind of awareness or interaction with it? What did you make of it? Any significant did yeah. you ever having.
1: Well, it's, it's like with everything in life, you know, a lot of times the lessons are revealed down the road and in hindsight, you can kind of see how things were actually being experienced in a way that was cultivating a much stronger understanding of something that at the time you probably didn't realize what it was. Um, I think one of the first first things for me that really comes up in my memory as a child is my time in Israel, actually, you know, used to go there every other year. So when I was really young, I don't know, maybe five or six, I don't have a lot of memories from that, that time in my life, but I do remember being at my grandparents' house in Israel and my grandfather had this amazing, beautiful garden uh, with all kinds of plants and flowers and plum trees and, you know, these kind of ceramic sculptures and statues that he made and, you know, uh, fountains. And at the time, you know, again, it was just kind of like as a child kind of running around in the garden and playing. And looking back on that, you know, I remember how much awe I had spending, you know, hours in in this huge garden and just kind of running around and playing and experiencing and so that was one of the earliest memories i have of um of of something that i think moved me in a way that i wasn't able to quite understand at the time Um, and then you know as i got a little older actually one of the more pivotal memories that i have from being a kid was, I think I was about, I was probably about eight or nine at this time. And uh, my parents actually got separated and I was living in North Carolina at the time, which is where I was born. And my mom took my sister and I to Atlanta um, where my dad's parents were. And, um, you know, there was just more uh, available for us there. And uh, I remember after we moved, there was this weird thing that that I had where I would get homesick every time I tried to spend the night at a friend's house. And so I didn't understand where it was coming from because, you know, all I wanted to do was like, hang out and, you know, play video games and then go to sleep and wake up in the morning and, you know, do it again. And I, I knew that I wanted to stay there, but something would happen every single time without fail. By the time my friend would fall asleep, I'd have to go get his mom and tell her to call my mom to come pick me up, and I'd have to go home. And um, it really sucked. And you know, I didn't really know how to navigate it. And then uh, one summer, my mom enrolled me in this summer camp uh, that was, you know, for a full month. And I mean, looking back, like I don't know how either one of us was like on board with that being that I hadn't even been able to like spend one night out on my own yet. Right. Uh, but somehow, you know, uh, that, you know, that option came on the table. And so I guess I was open enough to it to try. And that, like that experience changed my life. You know, that first, uh, that first month that I, you know, was away from my, my mom and my family and everything I knew, Uh, for an entire month in the mountains of Georgia uh, with a bunch of other kids. And it like my mom always says the thing she remembers vividly from that experience was her crying, sending me off on the bus on the way out, you know, because she felt so bad. And like, you know, she was probably really looking forward to a month off, but you know, also was wondering what, uh, what was going to happen. And then witnessing me coming off the bus, you know, a month later, just, the biggest smile on my face saying, you know, I want to go, you know, to two months next year or whatever it was. And so that, again, it was one of those moments where at the time I didn't realize what was actually happening. I just understood it as this very, um, this just big experience that I was having where it was unlike anything that I've had before. And looking back on it though, uh, I realized how it was something that is really, really, Created a powerful story for me around what's available um, in nature, and when you're, you know, literally out, we would, you know, have these, uh, we would, you know, we have these cabins that we'd stay in for the most part, but then every once a week or something, we'd do these campfires and go camping out under the trees, and uh, so yeah, something within that experience, I think, was probably one of the first things that shifted my understanding of our connection to nature, whether I knew it at the time or not.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it, it is fascinating because I, I feel like so many of us have those, some kind of story like that, unless we grew up in the deep density of, you know, city life, um, there's always some formative moment we look back on and, and we're like, I, I had no idea that was what I was getting at the time. And uh, it makes me think about the importance of getting youth and children out into exposure you know, of nature if they don't have it, and if they do have it, how much can we get them out there? Because, um, yeah, it's. I mean, I reflecting on my own life, I was raised rurally on a small farm, and I was outside all the time. And and same thing, you know, didn't know what I got uh, until later in, the, in life. And um, one of the things I recognized for myself, which I'll ask about you next, was you know, do you when when do you think you started to recognize that there were some gifts in there? You know, getting out into I don't know, a teenager, college life, you know, did something start to help you sort of realize what those times may have brought to you and or were there was there any mentors that showed up along the way that started to, uh, you know, kind of bring some awareness to you around the, the value of being out in nature or was it just something that just, you know, one day you turned around and were like, oh, that was actually really important? Um, I mean,
1: you know, as far as I can remember, I think that, those experiences were were pretty profound in my life at that time, but it wasn't until much later in my life that the idea of nature being this inherent divine energy that, uh, you know, we have this, uh, we have this inherent connection to um, came through for me. So, uh, you know, even like what we were just talking about, how so many kids have that opportunity but don't realize at the time what it is that's happening or what it means. It made me think about how there's there's such an opportunity, I think, for these types, of, uh, these types of experiences for kids, but with a little bit of an educational element to it. So, you know, most of the time, summer camp is really all about just being out there and experiencing and all the things, and it's beautiful. But if there was some way to actually kind of bring that awareness at that point and to really kind of cultivate a deeper understanding for what this means and why does it feel so good? And what are the ways in which, you know, we can find a deeper connection to want to help be stewards for the planet. Um, I think that would be such an amazing, amazing gift and experience for kids. Um, For me, I don't think that my, my deeper awareness and connection to nature really fully came about until um, until my first uh, experience with ayahuasca um, in my you know, early 30s, there had been plenty of opportunities that had come up before then where I would go on these solo road trips up the coast of California and just have the most amazing experience and just know that it was in nature, especially when I was by myself, that I felt so alive. And that would be something that was there available for me on the surface, but there wasn't really much of a – there wasn't much of an understanding of anything deeper. And I don't think there was even much of a desire to, like, want to know or need to know any more than that, you know. It was kind of just like, well, I'm getting fresh air, you know. It's like, oh, fresh air does the body good. Um, So, yeah, I don't think it was until my first uh, experience with plant medicine until – that conversation really began to deepen a little more.
0: Yeah. So let's, let's uh, move into that conversation. Then Um, your nature connection awareness comes to people in a lot of different ways. Excuse me, let me take a drink of water. And um, there's a, you know, I, I feel like plant medicine has been growing in awareness. I feel like a lot of people know about it now. It's becoming more, accepted as a, as a viable pathway to um, you know deepening one's spiritual path I personally am tickled that it's plant medicine and, and not just you know texts <laughs> ancient teachings off the page um, and uh, so I'm just curious to hear like okay so you got that part of your childhood and then it wasn't you know then it was just something you were like nature's great for everybody and then and then, you heard about this thing, you got curious, and how did you end up deciding that that was a pathway for you to pursue?
1: Well, what's, what's interesting is it was around that time in my life where um, I, was, I was kind of in one of the most stable uh, stable points in my life from a career perspective. I was in a corporate sales job. I had a you know, bachelor pad. Down at the beach in Venice, uh, you know, had a four hundred one k and a savings account, and a nice car, and all the things. And um, the the pivotal shift for me came when I one day just all of a sudden realized that like I needed to leave. And why that was so crazy is because. Um, I had worked my way up in this particular job to where I wasn't actually even doing a whole lot anymore. You know, I had kind of built these relationships with accounts that I managed and, you know, I had kind of done it, laid enough of the groundwork to where I would just get a lot of residual commissions that would come in. And there was a part of me that kind of lost a bit of my fire to, to, you know, actively pursue And, you know, um, there was a little bit of a laziness that I think crept in, but, you know, to a lot of people, I think that, you know, to be in that space where you're making a ton of money, you're not actually having to do a lot. So there's actually time to like maybe explore, you know, something else on the side. And while I continue to get paid by this big company to support my life, I can pursue other things and see what I like. But the voice was as clear as it could possibly be that it was like, no, it's time to it's time to leave, wow. you know, the, the comfort of, of the home. It, this was this was the moment of my, you know, the Joseph Campbell's, you know, uh, hero's journey. Um, this was really the point of the like leaving the comfort of everything that I knew at that point to uh, to seek out whatever it was that was calling me. And uh, ayahuasca, the conversation happened to be floating around quite a bit at that time, and so that was a big integral part in that um, in that decision.
0: Right, and then not to go too deeply into that experience, but and it sounds like you've done ayahuasca, you know, more than once, and maybe some other things. But what would you say is the general, uh, you know, what how does how does that inform you? Like, what are you getting? What are you realizing as you go through these series of uh experiences you know with plant medicine
1: you know it's different every time but i think that the first one really that was the the main experience that kind of really pulled back the curtain and illuminated um just the this tangible feeling of how everything is interconnected to me you know not just this idea of it or this concept but like even (laughs) specifically visually being able to see it and witness it in the trees and in all of the life that was breathing is this one coherent system together. Um, That, that was one of the, you know, most revealing uh, things that came through in that first experience for me. And it was really probably the, the first time that the idea of, our inherent connection to nature and that deeper understanding of how you know the everything that i knew to be god up until that point was living and breathing all around us um was was what really kind of pushed me onto the path to kind of really you know start pulling on all these threads and trying to deepen my understanding of like what does that mean and you know Where do, where do I go from here? Um, So yeah, but every single opportunity since then has been, has been different.
0: Yeah. So where did you go from there? Once, once you had that realization and that reconnection.
1: Yeah. So (laughs) it's funny because I always think about how, you know, I think even at the time I was like, I don't know what, what I'm, what I'm doing. I don't know where I'm going, but I know that I'm supposed to be leaving So I know that I'm going to be, I feel so confident in this idea that where I'm supposed to be going is away from here. So I know that I'll be guided in the right direction. And I literally fumbled around and, you know, continue to to fumble in many ways, Um, you know, finding my place and finding the, the, uh, What's the word? Uh, it's not necessarily the purpose, but, you know, I think that I had this story or this idea that in leaving this world behind that I knew wasn't serving me anymore, immediately the doors would open to the places where I was supposed to go. I remember specifically uh, one of the the career paths, one of the jobs that I thought at the time just felt really deeply like this was the thing that I really wanted to do uh, was to open a restaurant. And, um, you know, there was, I'd started, i had started to deepen my connection to just my own health and prioritizing my health and nutrition at that time. And I came across this franchise restaurant concept based out of Canada. It's kind of like a Chipotle, but for like, you know, healthy food, salads, wraps, bowls, smoothies, fresh juice, all that. And I thought, you know, what a great opportunity to be able to do something that I'm actually passionate about and that uh, can help serve others. And uh, so I, you know, basically put everything I had into this restaurant um, to, um, uh, you know, to, to open this, this uh, location. And this was right at the exact same time when um, my ex-wife now at the time and I had our twins. So I have uh, now seven-year-old twins. But when I opened the doors to that restaurant, the twins had just been born a month before. Um, So, you know, I I joke around a lot about that whole first year having literally no memory from that period of my life because, you know, I was open to close every single day seven days a week for at least the first four months plus newborn twins at home um so that was that was a a real uh (laughs) test on so many levels but um you know i i ended up realizing it wasn't the right thing for me i mean the restaurant industry is brutal for anyone that's ever been involved with that and it, it Yeah, there was just a number of reasons why it wasn't going to work, um, just even from the way it was being supported by the higher ups. Uh, Thankfully, I was able to sell that restaurant after a couple of years and not take a complete loss on it. But, um, you know, within that period of time, while I was, you know, just neck deep in all things life with newborn twins and new business, um, I continued to deepen my practice with uh, with plant medicine and it ended up with an experience of me down in Peru um, getting an opportunity to work with Ayahuasca in the Amazon. And that's when I think something really shifted uh, pretty powerfully for me in realizing, knowing that the restaurant thing wasn't what I really wanted to do and feeling this kind of really deep calling to want to support um, what was happening in the Amazon at that time, as I was learning more and more about the environmental impact of everything that was happening. And uh, so that was kind of when the first seed of an idea was planted um, to create a business uh, that could help support the conservation of the Amazon. And um, yeah, but you know, th- that, journey, like, you know, like I said, leaving the comfort of the original corporate job and, you know, finding my way along this path that just has, has been anything but a clear cut, you know, like I knew for sure this was the right thing because this is where I was meant to go. That being said, I do feel that, you know, every step of the journey has led me exactly to where I am today, which is exactly where I need to be, but it's never been easy and it's never been very straightforward uh, to getting to where I am now.
0: Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of a couple of different allegories. One is uh, there's a, um, I think Ellen Watts tells that one of his books that I read years ago, about a master, uh, a student coming to his Zen master and asking him, how will he know if he's on his one true path?" and his uh, his master says, "Walking your one true path is like walking out into a field of f- fresh fallen snow. It's like hmm. you you make it as you walk it. There is no pre-established path. It's the one you actually blaze through your life. That is the true path. That one, I come back to that one a lot because similarly, and I just think also just because of, you know, this, the, I mean, obviously, we got climate crisis going on. We're still kind of struggling through this pandemic. Um, our country's economic situation is a disaster. Uh, you know, our, our government's like completely absorbed with itself in this investigation. Is it so much is going on right now? And so many of the circles that I'm in, as far as friends and connections, are, it does feel like, um, there's just this, uh, uh, unraveling, you know, there's an unraveling happening and I don't say that as a negative thing. I just say that that's how it appears to me. It's, it's like we had this very tightly wound, uh, well laid, you know, cable that supposedly went from a to B if you got on track, you know, and we're getting to see now that actually that cables split open and unraveling. And there's these ends that are just kind of like going in all directions. And I feel like there's so many of us who are starting to find our one true path, realizing that there isn't this one trajectory that we're all on. We're all on these different little mini trajectories. And uh, to come back to Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey, you know, a big part of that story, as you know, is following that thread to the end, You know, going out the thread to that tip of that thread that no one else has gone out to, seeing what the gift is there, and then bringing it back to share with the people to you know, make everyone's life better. And um, so, yeah, I'd like to kind of just tap into that about how going to Peru and um, and just being there in South America a few times and seeing what you saw. First, I'd love to know just how did that, you know, cause you talk about on your website, which we're going to go into in a few minutes about, I think it was Ecuador, where you're, where you're talking about seeing these pipelines and this crab-like machine just sucking all straight out mm-hmm. of the ground, and and then right yeah. there's just these tribal peoples who've been living there for tens of thousands of years and seeing that their yeah. way of life getting you know so not so much the uh, I, i'm not looking forward to so much of the what does it mean but just how how the fuck did that affect you i, 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 I mean i put myself in that situation yeah. I, I i don't know if i could even grok it you know it's just it's so intensely
1: yeah. That, I mean, that was the moment. Like That was the catalyzing moment that really shaped the direction uh, that, that I would end up going in you know, this business that I, that I have now that's um, oriented around the, the protection of the Amazon. Uh, before that time, it was just loose ideas kind of floating around of how I can kind of you know, create a social enterprise and do some good for the world. But it was at that point, I mean, it it was a ceremony, just being there, you know, completely sober, the most sober I think I may have ever felt in my life, witnessing what I saw, which was, you know, this oil block, which is, yeah, this big kind of crab-like machine. It actually looked very, um, it had this very just like, imposing evil kind of look to it even just as a machine like it had like arms that were going into the ground and sucking the the uh the oil out of the ground and then being transported out along these pipes all along the road the you know dirt road out of the amazon um but uh you know to witness that anyway just in a pristine um biodiverse type of of geography would be you know, polarizing enough on its own, but the fact that it was so deep all the way into the Amazon, literally a football field away from an indigenous village where they were living without electricity. Yet there was this massive, you know, enterprise raping the land and, um, doing so without any sort of, um, responsibility at all, whether or not that could be done in a responsible way. I mean, at the very least, you know, having some sort of um, uh, consolation to offer to these people, but these people were were given nothing, nothing in exchange for their land, um, you know? And so it was just really sobering because I remember there was a point where I was standing right outside the fence of this oil block and I could hear the machine pumping right behind me. And then, you know, I turn in the other direction and I can literally hear the birds um, in the canopy of, of the Amazon coming from that side. And it just, it really changed everything for me. It really was the point where I really started to understand all of the things that had been coming through, through, you know, the ceremonies and the deepening of my connection and all of our inherent connection to nature in the way that, this is this is the analogy of how we are operating. Like this is the full representation of man's complete disregard um, for our life itself, and being willing to literally, you know, destroy the very essence of our life here in the pursuit of, you know, greed, money, uh, overconsumption of resources. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was a real pivotal moment for me when, um, when it really woke something up from wanting to do something more with what I was already doing.
0: Right. Right. So let's go into that a little bit then. What was it that, um, so you, you go down there, you have this, you know, reckoning with, oh shit, this is going down and he has some ideas But then you get back home and it's like, all right, step one, you know, and, and again, I'm not asking this from like, how do you build a business, Danny, (laughs) but more from, you know, following, following that passion, following that spiritual intuitive knowing of like, this is what I have to do, following the, um, all the things that you had to change in your life to redirect it, to accomplishing this vision you had. So it's more just coming from that, that personal experience of like, I'm human. This is how humans work. this is my reflection and response to the world that supports me the planet that supports me so that's really what I'm kind of wanting to know about like just how did that or you know just that internal process and maybe you've never really thought about that way so if it's kind of you know stop yeah anxiety, I mean, that's fine but
1: it is it is something that I've thought about and I continue to think about because it doesn't feel like I'll ever really get to a place of reconciliation because you know we we are the world has changed, you know, the world has changed. And the, uh, the way in which we operate on this planet, um, you know, to support the billions of people that live here is just, um, the, the systems, the broken systems that are in place. Um, they I 100% they need to be dismantled and replaced by ones that can serve and steward a, you know, a healthy planet and, a uh, you know, a reliable future for all of us. But at the same time, it's like, you know, every day I find myself doing things that I feel are out of necessity for just how our life has been set up. And, uh, you know, can I sell my car, you know, and just ride my bike everywhere? Probably not. Um, So it's this constant process of trying to figure out just what what can I do? Like what is within my power to do, especially within this company. And I think the biggest thing that was illuminated while, you know, with my time in Ecuador is just seeing how abundant and how full of joy and how much life um, these, these indigenous communities had with what we would consider nothing. And, you know, it literally changed the, the, the idea of the paradigm of what what it means to need you know um, and, yeah, and so how, how do you,
0: you how do you explain yeah. that to yourself because I I find that fascinating too because I know in my own life I think about like there's so much stuff I have right now and I downsized a lot to live where I'm living now you know and, yeah but still I look around I'm thinking there's all this stuff I got I'm not particularly joyful in my life but I have this sort of like, I don't know if I can get, I don't know if I can get rid of that, you know, and, and then to see these other people, like you're saying, and to know there's been times where I've been out, you know, doing, you know, kind of survival style camping, or even when you go out to do the fast where you literally have just enough to keep you warm and some water and this great, you know, sense of peace and calm and, and reconciliation comes over us. So I'm just curious, like, how do you, you know, how do you wake up every day? And know that you're living a life that's sitting on top of all these resources in order to do the thing you want to do the most, which is eliminate the way that we use all these resources so that we can, you know, preserve it's, these communities and these people.
1: It's it's hard. It's hard. There's no, there's no kind of easy answer to that for me, especially because, you know, on many days I still wake up, um, you know, really feeling the collective grief of the planet. And um, I think that that's actually been one of the things that um, you know, I've recognized the most through all of these experiences is, is how this collective suffering that a lot of us are going through is directly connected to um, the experience of, of how we live on this planet. I don't, I don't know who is attributed to the quote, but you know, so someone said something to the effect of like any harm that we inflict upon the planet we inflict upon ourselves and you know that understanding of you know it it, it's just it's really it's it's tough because sometimes you wonder like are we just masochistic you know like do we do even knowing that understanding that deeply and yet continuing to operate in a similar way that we know is detrimental to our own personal well-being um, so every day for me is really, um, the focus it, it always, I realize anytime I think too far out into the big picture vision of what it is that I'm trying to create, it's at that point that I get completely overwhelmed and, um, and it feels very heavy. So yeah. it always, you know, the practice for me is always just coming back, you know, to what's right in front of me. And keeping it very focused on, you know, what are the things I can do in this moment, um, you know, in regards to my own health and my own well-being and the way that I show up in the world. Um, and then really making sure I'm staying connected to the why of the organization, too, which a large part of is uh, to support these Indigenous artisan communities. And when I start to think too much about all of the logistics in the business and, you know, I kind of get lost But every time, you know, I have a call or conversation with one of my contacts down there and I just just tap back into them and the spirit of what they're doing there and the joy and the gratitude they have for any little thing that I'm able to send at any point. It's like this is this is the fuel. This is the motivation to keep going simply to be, you know. Connected into that wisdom that they have, and you know, the the receiving and the giving that I'm able to have from being able to support them.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a beautiful relationship you've gotten to cultivate. Um, So, let's go into how. So, you come back, you have this awakening and this realization something needs to be done. And um, now there's this entity called Oma. And um, so, talk about like how you came to the conclusion that this would be the best way to start as far as getting something, you know, doing something effective now as opposed to something really effective later. And, uh, what did it take to sort of make those connections with the people down there and to build those relationships to where there was some equanimity involved on both sides?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because you, a lot of times you see businesses and you see, um, you know, uh, businesses that have ach- achieved a certain level of success. And it always just seems like it was really easy for them to get to where they got because it just seems like it makes so much sense to you. And you never really know the the origin story of a lot of these these um, these companies and how they got to where they are. But, you know, Alma wasn't Oma when it started. There was a different name for the company. It was a different product. All I knew was that you know, through the same one-for-one model that Tom's Shoes really kind of championed and created a whole new generation of social enterprises that were utilizing this one-for-one model, um, in my, in my deepening of my connection to the Amazon specifically and connecting with an organization called Rainforest Trust, which is one of the highest rated organizations that is doing conservation in that space, um, It became clear that you know you could you could purchase and protect an acre of rainforest for as little as like a dollar or two in many of these areas, which just seemed insane to me. Um, But the kind of business brain kind of kicked in and was like, okay, well that's a number that can fit within the margin of a product. You know, what product can I create to really be able to build? this offering that could support, you know, an acre of rainforest being able to be protected for every product purchase. And like I said, it went through many different iterations, but it was only until it was really my first trip to Peru where the idea that like this needs to be bigger than selling stuff. Like, as a matter of fact, I think that the, the, the problem in the social enterprise space now is that, the the give back has really been used as a greenwashing technique by a lot of companies to say you know buy this thing and we'll plant a tree and most people don't understand that the cost from a lot of these big organizations that are doing a lot of good doing tree planting around the world is can be as little as 10 cents so you know you could be wow. Uh, wow. buying you know this product for fifty dollars or whatever it is and, you know you're getting you're planting one tree with nominal uh proceeds from that but what is the thing like what is the thing that's being purchased what is the impact on the environment to have that thing uh, manufactured shipped all of those things Mm -hmm. so um in in being down in south america and really recognizing that this the the heart and soul of this project is not going to be about the impact in the donations made. It needs to be about supporting the people that live here in a way that in itself can combat deforestation. Cause a big thing that I don't think a lot of people realize is that one of the biggest tools for fighting deforestation in the Amazon is simply empowering those communities with work. You know, it's, it, it's kind of crazy to think, but a lot of times, you know, uh, they, the indigenous people themselves will resort to resource extraction, like cutting down trees or mining or whatever it is, because there's no other way to put food on the table. So if we can kind of change that and create a new economy in a way that is actually, you know, done in a fair trade way and is genuinely done in integrity to support these communities and creating uh, business opportunities for them to utilize the land as opposed to, extracting and destroying it, um, that by itself, if I didn't have any element to my business that we donate to rainforest trust after every product sold, it in itself would still be uh, uh, advocating and promoting conservation of the land just in the entity itself, creating job opportunities for these people. Um, So it was kind of understanding that and knowing, learning more about that, uh, that really changed the, the scope of what the heart and soul of, of the company would really be.
0: Right, right. And so, so then how did you, um, you know, so you, you got clear in that, I mean, you did did your research, obviously had some conversations and then clearly you had some connections just because you had been down there to visit for these ceremonies. And um, was it the rain? The Rainforest Foundation is that Rainforest, the Rainforest Trust Rainforest Trust uh-huh. Foundation. So contact with them. So how did how did you zero in on um, the product? Which you know I think the primarily is these bracelets that are made. Yeah, and so so there, did you there, need there, to talk to? And how like you know like how how much how much boots on the ground did you personally have in just figuring that piece out?
1: And it is all boots on the ground. You know the the inspiration actually came because at the time when I was, you know, looking to kind of pivot from what I was doing with the company at that at that point, there was um there was a, a brand it's called Four Ocean um, that had this business model where they were cleaning a lot of this plastic trash out of the ocean in Bali, and um, and they were repurposing it and kind of created a similar model where every bracelet that they sold, they were able to pull a pound of trash out of the ocean. So that was actually kind of like, they were kind of like the inspiration to utilize that similar model, but in, in a, in my opinion, in a much more direct way to not only support these communities that lived in the areas we were working to protect, but by utilizing natural regenerative materials that, you know, the entire bracelet would be biodegradable. Whereas, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a challenge that I have when it comes to a lot of the recycled, you know, recycling kind of environmental stuff because at the end of the day, you know, you can recycle plastic into a bracelet, but that bracelet is still made out of plastic and at the end of its life cycle, it's going to still go to a landfill. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was all boots on the ground, you know, kind of talking with these artisans, looking at the various different uh, bracelets that they, that they made or jewelry and all the other artisan products, um, and then coming across this material called tagua, uh, which is uh, native to Ecuador, and it's basically known as uh, eco-ivory. It's a nut that grows on palm trees down there, and it essentially has the same look and feel as elephant ivory. Um so, you know, again, that in itself is helping to steward um, a, a reimagining of an industry that is completely destructive um, to a species that's on the brink of extinction. Um, so there's so many different pieces to it, you know, this, this is amazing material that can be utilized to help combat um, the ivory trade, and there's this, these amazing groups of artisans that this particular idea can support and have a ripple effect on protecting the rainforest and on top of that you know we can do more so it just kind of was a natural progression of just figuring out and to be honest i'm still figuring out like one of the biggest things i'm kind of going through my my left brain critical kind of trying to figure out what it needs to look like is um Kind of creating new, new types of bracelets that obviously you know will still serve the um, the all of the areas that we're serving with the materials and the and the artisans, but you know that will appeal to a larger demographic so that we can truly make you know an impact at scale. That's been you know that's been the biggest challenge for me is you know having to. Embody that, you know, entrepreneurial side of things where I do have to figure out, you know, the business, email marketing, advertising, all the things where in reality, like all I want to do is just, you know, be in Ecuador and, and, Mm. you know, working with these communities face to face.
0: Yeah, I feel like that's a little bit of the the karmic uh the karmic bite in the ass for us first holders, <laughs> you know, who uh are waking up from our life of, you know, relative luxury and, and want to do something about it. And and there's so much, you know, there's so many uh facades and veils and throughputs we have to go through just to do the thing. I, I find that personally exhausting just with the oh my god, all the pieces, you know, that we have to do for each other just so we can get each other enrolled in things. Um, Yeah. Yeah, So so, big part of that journey
1: for me now is just in connecting, you know, finding, finding people that I can connect to because I have a massive vision for this, for this project and, um, and I've seen it and I know it's attainable. I know it's more than attainable. I've seen so many other companies that have taken uh, an approach that's completely out of integrity, um, you know, mass producing, junk from china and and uh and tacking on a little you know social give back to it and really doing more harm than good so i know it's possible i know it's happening and now it's just a matter of you know just keeping my why in front of me and um you know making connections and connecting with the right people and um you know yeah trying to keep kind of trying to keep um The future of the planet for my children and um and all of these amazing people that i've met along the way at the forefront of my mind you know anytime i start to get caught up in the minutia of stuff
0: yeah yeah well it's i mean i'm I'm really impressed just by not only the um you know the product and how the product's made and sourced but also you, you guys have uh um uh the packaging uh Zero waste packaging, which is great. But then you also have carbon neutral shipping. And I, I haven't really heard so much about that as a thing. I know it's out there, but I'm just curious. This is maybe a little, little off on a tangent on my own curiosity, but how did you figure that out and how does that work, carbon neutral shipping?
1: So carbon, the carbon neutral shipping is actually done through a particular third party um, uh uh, shipper called Sendal. And um, I think the way that they work is they essentially create carbon offset credits uh, by doing tree planting of their own for any of the, you know, carbon emissions uh, that happen through shipping. I mean, that's the one element that no matter how, you know, uh, Environmentally friendly. You create anything at the end of the day. If you have to ship it, there's going to be some element of a detrimental impact on the environment. Um, so, you know, the, yeah, this company has um, has is, is doing amazing things. It's allowing people to, you know, kind of ship their products while also offsetting any of the impact through a lot of their own environmental um, contributions.
0: Yeah, well I I appreciate they're doing a lot of their own work because I feel like that's where a lot of the um the benefit kind of gets washed out is people contracting other people saying, Hey, we're we're gonna do this thing and then say, Okay, you'll do it for us, but then it doesn't really get yeah. done or it gets done in a shady way. And so I, I definitely can respect a company that's saying, We'll do it ourselves. And <laughs> that's, yeah. that's good to know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, I really like it just, you know, again, I think seeing how a lot of these other organizations were doing things out of integrity with whatever it was, whether it's the advertising in the unscrupulous way or just there's always these little things that I'm like, I I could never take that approach. But I think that all of those things were what really pushed me to really want to like cover all the bases and really ensure that the the offering was as, um, you know, as committed to the overall impact as possible, um, in the packaging, the shipping and everything included.
0: Yeah. That's really great, Danny. I, I fully appreciate that kind of dedication, you know? Um, so let's talk a little bit about the, the goal of the project right now. It's the 1 million acre, uh, goal. So, just talk a little bit about how you came up with that number and what does that number represent to those people? Um, are, are there any kind of, you know, any data points about like what impact preserving a, a million worth a million acres of rainforest does, or, you know, just tell us a little more about how that how that's going and what inspired that number.
1: Yeah. I mean the idea of 1 million acres was just, um, something that it came through and what's really interesting is that I had no idea at the time, but the, word oma in many different languages around the world actually means grandmother Uh and um and you know in in the world of plant medicine you know ayahuasca is commonly known as the the grandmother spirit and i think it's really interesting that the the idea of oma was kind of brought through in one of these ceremonies for me so um the number itself is pretty arbitrary you know i think that as the business continues to grow I'm really looking to expand our support of other organizations as well uh, that are working to help protect various different, you know, endangered species, wildlife. Um, I think that the big vision for OMA is to be able to create a platform that really inspires people and advocates the deeper knowledge that of some of the stuff that we were talking about earlier, our, our connection to nature, ways in which people can get involved and, um, you know, deepen their connection through a lot of the practices like, a um, a fast in the desert or some of these other things. So the, the surface level goal is yes, to continue doing the work to support these communities while, uh, donating towards, con- uh, conservation for the rainforest. But, The the types of projects, the impact projects that we'll support as we go forward, will continue to grow and, you know, work with other types of organizations all along the spectrum in the environmental space. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the one million acres is for sure a milestone that, you know, at which point it will be reached, you know, it will be amazing. Um, But OMA is really the spirit of the organization in that it is in, in service to mother earth and grandmother spirit in our, you know, and it's in, in the entirety and totality of, of all life that exists here.
0: Yeah. I, I love that, man. It's, that is kind of fun. How OMA works out as the acronym. Yeah. Um, where are you guys at presently on that path to a million?
1: Um, we, the last, last, Time we've kind of done, I think it was about fifteen thousand acres at one point. Um the last time, and we're we're pushing it on to the twenty thousand acre mark now. So um definitely just getting started in the in the process.
0: Yeah. And how long has this uh campaign been going roughly?
1: Oma as it is today in its kind of current iteration has I've been doing it for about two years.
0: Okay. So, yeah, a million acres, that could take a while uh, at the current rate. So, uh, as you said, you're definitely dreaming up ways to move this along. Um, let's assume something really amazing happens, which it will, and the a million acres is hit. What do you, what is that, um, you know, I, I'm sure you've kind of imagined that that point, And then what does that, um, what does that empower you and the people there who are benefiting from owning that land? to do next? What's the, uh, you know, what's the, uh, stepping stone?
1: Yeah. I mean, kind of recognizing how, how much gets to happen from now until the point where we've contributed enough to protect a million acres. I realized that at that point that we were to cross that threshold, the, the company will have expanded enough and the platform will be, um, will, will have reached enough people, Where at that point, I see it being so much more than just, you know, a project that's goal was to protect 1 million acres of rainforest. You know, again, um, the the what's next or the bigger vision has always been and will continue to be, you know, deepening the discussion around ways in which we can uh, support the Earth, support all those that we share the planet with, whether it's in, you know, creating economic opportunities for these artisans or um, creating experiences. Um, there's, yeah, the, the idea is to have a, a big enough platform to be able to share more of these types of stories and kind of uh, offer more of the indigenous wisdom that's coming out of these areas that we're working with to inspire the next generation to kind of, you know, change the way they view uh, how, how we exist on the planet and what each, each one of our roles can be here. I think it's very easy to get caught up in the like, well, my, what I do doesn't matter. You know, I can't make a difference. What, what picking up one piece of trash isn't going to do anything, but you know, like very conversely to that, like every little thing matters and can have a ripple effect. And, you know, if, if, People can be inspired to just do one little thing, even if it's like that, just you're on a hike and instead of walking past the trash this time, you pick up that one piece of trash, even if it's one time, you know, just really deepening into the understanding that every little choice we make, uh, can have a big ripple effect.
0: Yeah. I like that a lot, Danny. Uh, I know that I can fall into the, the pit of anger and then. Despair, walking out in beautiful places and seeing trash. Like the first thing I do is I just get mad. I'm just like, who in the hell?
1: Yeah. And. this guy? Thing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it takes me a while to get past um, the the uh, the person that did it, and get to uh, well, can I just care for the earth? You know, who, whatever this this person did this, you know, whatever. And there's no way to like me leaving that piece of trash there. Does not has no effect whatsoever on who that person is and why they left trash there. They may not even know that. I mean, I know I've left trash some places. That I don't know I've left. It just happens. Shit falls out of your pocket. You know, whatever. I remember I was driving down the highway once in a pickup truck and um, moving fast, like 70, 75 miles an hour. And it was pretty busy. Lots of cars. There was probably like four or five miles between exits. And I saw something fly out of the back of my truck. I don't remember what it was. It's like some plastics, cardboardy thing. And I was like, "Oh shit!" And I felt so bad. But also, I told myself, "There's no way in hell I'm going to drive six miles, you know, six minutes up the highway, take the exit, come back down.
1: Yeah, stop in the middle of the freeway. Stop
0: in the middle like, and find a way to like it's that just doesn't happen, you know." And so, I recognize that um, there's a piece for me just being reminded that for step one, uh, just get you know get past the anger you know, feel it, feel it, but not to act on it. Because for me, acting on the anger in those moments means I'm not picking up that trash. It's not mine. But then getting past that to like, well, I am going to pick up this trash because I love the earth. I care about the earth. Like you're saying, uh, you know, I think there's a big teaching to be had in doing those little small things begins to reprogram how we, you know, our our belief systems, our values, like all that stuff comes up up for, uh, you know, rediscovery and and uh, when we just take those little actions, even if it's uncomfortable or annoying, just the physical act of it. Something you said earlier about embodiment, I feel like it's a big part of it. Like sometimes our mind doesn't have to understand. We just yeah. have to ask our bodies to do the thing.
1: Yeah, and I think it's also a really good practice in like releasing shame and guilt around, you know, not doing it. You know, that's been the thing for me sometimes. It's like, what? Like I just walked past that piece of mm-hmm. trash like and now i'm thinking about it for the next few minutes and like you know wow, like it was so easy like all i and instead of like allowing that to create the story that i am just this kind of person that is lazy or not willing to do my part it's literally as simple as okay but guess what if i walk by nine pieces of trash and pick up the 10th piece of trash you know on the the 10th hike or whatever it is i still picked up one more piece of trash than I would have if I didn't do anything hmm. and every little incremental thing, you know, definitely compounds on itself. And I think that, yeah, it's getting stuck on who the person that did it was as opposed to like really just feeling into like, who am I, how do I show up in the world? And what is the type of person that, uh, that, that I'm committed to being and, and, uh, the integrity that I'm, you know, claiming to walk this earth with, um, really gets to be the main focus to allow people to to feel a little bit more um, capable and um, effective with anything that they do, even if it's a little, yeah, one little thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, this has been great, Danny. I just want to wrap up with one more question and then we'll kind of head to a close, but um, just, and I know you said earlier, uh, you know, you kind of discipline yourself not to get too caught up in the big picture. Um, But I'm gonna gonna ask you a big picture question. Try (laughs) not to get caught up. Yeah, I mean, you got two kids, you know. I think you said they're boys, right? Twins.
1: A a boy and a girl.
0: A boy and a girl, right? So you know, they're seven, and Mm -hmm. in another ten to fifteen years, they're gonna be walking around out in the world. That you know, whatever we've done with it in the next you know ten to fifteen years. So I'm just curious to hear a little bit about how you hold. You know, I mean, I get it. You go, you get up every day, you're contending with email and phones and taking meetings and all this stuff, you know, that that it takes just to get, you know, people aware of these ideas. Um, And then you go home and there's your kids. So what do you, you know... I don't know what the question is, but there's, there's just a legacy piece. There's a generational piece. There's a, um, there's a time piece with what they say we're headed for and the time we're headed for, but how do you just kind of hold that, um, you know, for yourself around what do you, what do you hope realistically, if that's the right word that you are able to bequeath to your children as far as like what you did and, and the world that you think we can create, you know, or, you know, rectify in the next, you know, one to two decades.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's such a good question and something that, you know, I obviously think about a lot. One of the most impactful things that was ever communicated to me, um, around this specifically, and it also pertains to, to my business as well. Um, it was actually during a, um, uh, San Pedro ceremony that I that I did in Ecuador, and there was an opportunity at the kind of towards the end of it where each one of us had the chance to kind of sit across the fire from the shaman and kind of deepen into something that was being called to explore on a deeper level. And you know, I forgot how it started, but she's basically asking me. You know, um, somehow the line of questioning came to do you believe that um, I think I had expressed, like, I don't feel that I'm scared for the future of this planet because I don't feel that we are going to be able to do what we need to do to save ourselves. And she said, well, why, um, why do you believe that? Do you believe that people are inherently good and I remember saying, like, you know, I have these circles of people that I am blessed to be able to connect with. And so I know that around the world there are so many people that are good and, you know, will do what's right in any given moment. But looking out at the big picture, to be able to 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 witness the atrocities and the capacity that man has to literally violently destroy each other with no regard makes me feel like on a big picture scale that we do not ultimately have what it takes to do what we need to do to save ourselves from ourselves. And I remember she she looked at me and she said, do you think that if you believe that to be the case, you're you have a company where your mission and your uh, your message is for uh, for the world to come together to help protect the rainforest and beyond. She said, "Do you believe that if your current idea of humanity is that we don't care enough about anything?" to actually do what's right that you will succeed in your business do you feel that you will be able to reach your goal if this is what you believe about humanity and i just like like tears started flowing through my eyes and i really just like had this deep awareness around like i i can't continue to operate in the world with the story and the idea that we ultimately will will fail. you know. Ultimately, from a big picture perspective, uh, humanity does not have what it needs in order to self-destruct, especially when I've seen so much of the opposite of that to be true in my direct experience. Everything around me directly tells me otherwise. And yet when I kind of go online on the internet and I see all the stuff, that's when it's like, there's no way, you know, the fact that this one thing is happening is indication that we're done. We're fucked. There's no way. And so that literally changed my perspective from that moment forward to really make sure that I was constantly checking in with myself and checking in with my story of what I believe to be true about uh, our capacity for love and for um connection and for responsibility and for doing the right thing. And I'd be lying if I said, you know, that I I shifted my belief and now it's like, that's all, that's the path that I, that I believe to be true every day. Now that that story constantly comes back and haunts me when I see a lot of the other things happening. But the big lesson in that for me has been, it's a choice. It's always a choice. And at the end of the day, if I keep coming back to the idea that there is a lot of things happening that you're not going to see broadcast through mainstream media all over the news because fear sells. And that's what, you know, uh, the majority of a big part of the population is addicted to, but knowing that there's a, uh, there's a rising, there's an uprising that's happening as we speak. Um, and really connecting deeper into that and just remembering that like, as long as I know that that's happening, the only thing I need to do is to continue to do my part in that and not get caught up in the minutiae. And, you know, when it involves my children, it's just doing what's right in front of me. You know, like if I get too deep into the story that like my kids, like I I'm so scared, to think about the world that is going to be here for uh, my kids by the time they get older. You know, it's a crippling, paralyzing, and overwhelming idea. So I just choose to focus as much as my attention on the, you know, as Charles Eisenstein says, the the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. um, And, you know, just do my best to give my little contribution to that as best I can.
0: Mm. Yeah, I love that, Danny. Um, I could take a note from that because I I definitely get so hung up in the big picture. And I see how that definitely uh, creates lots of uh, opportunities I don't say yes to or act on because I'm too stuck on like for what. So uh, I guess kids will do that to you.
1: (laughs) 100%.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, folks. So the website is omaearth.com. That's O-M-A-Earth.com. There's um, handmade bracelets. I think there's two, two different versions on there. And also yeah. some t- T-shirts and sweatshirts if you want to get some, some branding on there to show the world.
1: Yeah, and we got a few other Artisan products kind of working on expanding some of the other offerings from the Artisan community. So yeah, stay tuned. Yeah.
0: Yeah, hundred percent biodegradable, made from all natural. Hand is everything pretty much handmade. They hand carve the beads, or did they have some ways. Of yeah. Doing
1: better. Well, they they're, they have machines, but uh-huh. you know it's these. they it's not a big factory. You know, it's these little <laughs> t- table saws that they're using. You know, out on this wooden table that they've constructed. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. Yeah. Yeah, Danny, thanks so much. Um, it's, it's great. It was great meeting you when you came out to do the the rite of passage and. Um, Oh, that was just the last final thing. What uh, do you want to share? Anything about how that ceremony has uh, informed you on where things are headed now for you, as far as you know? What did you get out there?
1: Yeah, I mean that was for sure one of the more pivotal moments in my life that that really deepened the connection, uh, deepened my connection to nature in a in a more beautiful way. Um, you know, I spent I spent pretty much the entirety of my last day just naked on the land um, and and channeled a really beautiful story through me as I lay under a tree um, that I had this very deep, powerful vision of um, myself as a child uh, running naked through a field. And just that, um, the, the remembrance of that as if it was it was an experience that I actually had, like I couldn't, it wasn't a memory that I had from my actual childhood, but it was a memory of an experience that I've had at some point, whether in this lifetime or another that didn't feel like I was thinking of a story or something. This was somewhere that I had been before. And so it was a very, very profound moment for me of just remembering what it felt like to kind of run naked on the earth as a child Free from judgment, free from you know uh, story of all the all the things that we collect along the way, and um, it just in in some very deep energetic way beyond what I understand through language, it opened up a new level of just um, what's possible, what's available out in nature in you know, our raw primal form. Uh, there's so much healing, you know, there's so much healing available, um, right outside our doors. And we just have to be willing to, to just show up and get still and just kind of sit, uh, with our thoughts in those spaces. And so much can, can come through and, and move through, um, You know, just by allowing ourselves to like take a pause and take a break from all the stuff. Uh, So, yeah, that that was one of my big reminders to, you know, not let that not let those those opportunities slip because they do every day, every week. You know, it's it's it takes work to allow yourself the space to go there to do that. Um, So I'm working on that one still for sure.
0: Yeah, well, we all are. And it's, you know, one last thing before we close, what that really reminded me of, I'm I'm definitely uh, aware that there are indigenous communities out there who, I think about the aborigines in Australia in particular, because they say that they have been living pretty much the same lifestyle for over 40,000 years. Mm -hmm. And what blows me away is like, so what, what, how are they seeing the world differently? You know, what, what vision are they staying so connected to or experienced that they're staying so connected to, such as the memory of running naked through a field, which they probably do as adults, that is so fulfilling and so peaceful that the, you know, the, the, the modern world that we, the rest of us has built up is not that attractive to them. You know, and the same way you're saying that there's indigenous villages down in Ecuador where, or anywhere in South America where there's massive amounts of corporate, you know, wealth and pursuit of, you know, power and convenience and luxury that's just being taken out of the ground right next to them. And somehow they're, they're still, they're not particularly, I mean, I know that there's attrition that happens because, you know, like you said, when, uh, way of life is taken away you have to figure out a different way to do it and if you can't beat them join them i think is in the end what kind of takes those people down but still there's this perseverance of this is the way we've always lived this is the way we want to live it's still in our their perspective more fulfilling and and more you know human to live those ways. And that's one mystery that I'm still trying to figure out. I was like, what is how, what is their psychology that keeps them uh, so potently uh, subscribed to that indigenous way of being that we, the rest of us have lost.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. It's, it's, it's really, yeah. It's interesting to think, is it an inherent knowing that they don't even need to experience this other thing first? They already know just based on this ancient indigenous wisdom. Is it, you know, hearing the stories i can only imagine you know like if you they're you know a, a healer in these indigenous communities that's running an ayahuasca retreat the like stories you hear from these these city people coming in and talking about all of the the shit that they're bringing in with them like is that enough for them like no nah, we're good <laughs> we're good right, right. we're gonna yes. stay here yeah um yeah. but you know i imagine yeah there's there's um you know, it's possible that it's just, it's enough. Like, you know, I think there's a whole other conversation that can be had around the pursuit of more, you know, what, what more do I need? Like what else do I need other than what I have right here? That's such a Western idea, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think that maybe that's even a place that they really kind of go deep into is like, what more do I need than what I have right now? Why would I want to go anywhere else? This is especially when you understand like the, the deep connection of the divine within the most, you know, biodiverse place on earth, you know? Yeah. Like, they just know that like, why would I leave paradise? Right. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. It is.
0: Well, that, that pretty much brings us full circle to where we yeah. started. So it's a, it's a great place to, uh, to wrap with you, man. And I just want to say thanks again for coming on and uh, sharing your journey and your experience. And um, yeah, super inspired by uh, really getting the full story on how you got to what you're up to and, and and what you are up to presently and how it's going. So yeah, thank you, Danny.
1: Yeah, likewise. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It's awesome getting to, to connect uh, through Compass. And uh, yeah, looking forward to continuing and exploring more.
0: Awesome. And for those listeners out there, uh, omaearth.com. Check it out. You, uh, your simple, easy purchase can save an acre of rainforest, just like that, by pushing the button. Yeah, uh, let's go. Yeah, we'll see y'all next time. Thanks again, Danny.
1: Appreciate you, man.
0: All right, Rising Man community, thank you so much for tuning in today. That is the show with Danny Blue. Um, I hope you got something out of there that you can take with you and um, and find some way to, to work into your life. If nothing else, just go to the website. That'd be the easiest way, right? OmaEarth, O-M-A-E-A-R-T-H, omaearth.com. And uh, given those bracelets, they're beautiful, uh, super inexpensive. It's I can't think of a more easier way with literally just with a few of your fingertips and a couple minutes of your time protecting an entire acre of rainforest. That's amazing. And again, I'm just uh, blown away by how easily uh, one man's vision can have an impact on the whole world, right? Because the rainforest, you know, as you know, the rainforest is putting out oxygen for the whole planet. It's just not putting out oxygen for that one acre. And yeah, it's uh, you know, it looks easy on this side of things where we can just go to a website and with a couple of taps of our finger, um, do something, you know, have an incredible impact like that. Uh, but on the backside, as Danny was talking about, and as, as any of you know, if you're trying to put your vision out to the world, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of uh, research. It's a lot of uh, learning software. It's a lot of building up contacts and connections and staying on top of them. It's an immense... Amount of time and work. It's it's the research. It's building the contacts. It's getting informed. It's it's learning software a lot of the times. It's uh it's finding the right people to uh, who know and have the uh, the ability to contribute to building out a project. So it's no small task. It takes up a lot of time. It's usually people's primary you know occupation trying to get these kind of projects off the ground. And yet when we go to the website, it seems what, I just got to punch in uh, my name and, you know, a few details and throw a little money and I save a whole acre of rainforest? Done. So uh, I really just invite you to go and support the OMA Project and to do that. And um, and you get this really, really sweet bracelet and uh, people going to ask you about it and you can point them to omaearth.com as well. and um, And then we have a million acres of rainforest saved. And then what? You know, there's so much to do beyond that. And the sooner we can hit that first milestone, the sooner we can get on to uh, regenerating and, and you know, taking uh, stewardship of a planet that we've kind of run into the ground. So um, be a part. Be a part. All right. Enough said. Uh, big shout out to Mark and Julian. Uh, these two men. These are the guys who are responsible for the entirety of the Rising Man podcast offerings. Uh, all of them. Uh, They take our scratchy audios, our shaky videos, and they punch them up. They make them look great. They edit them down, uh, which my videos, uh, they need a lot of editing down. I talk too much. But um, they're writing the summaries. They're posting them up on social media. They're getting them on YouTube. Uh, They are the ones who make sure that this content gets to you on time, every time, in a format that's easily digestible. So again, thank you guys uh, for knocking it out of the park every time. And for me, I'm your host Sean Barry. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, don't forget find out who you are inside. By getting outside, I'll see you next time.